This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share, a podcast brought to you by the Secret Keeper Counselling, where we talk all things mental health with clients and clinicians. There may be tears, triggers, laughter, some learning, and possibly some profanity. You've been warned. Now make yourself a cup of tea, sit back and relax as I talk with Peter from Sutherland Shire in New South Wales, and today he's going to share a few of his secrets. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Francis. Uh, I'm busy running through my head making up secrets that I can share with you, <laughs> so this isn't the most dullest one of the, the podcasts you're going to do. I mean, you told me about the last person. She's an amazing person, and I'm kind of insipid. You're kind of insipid. Why do you think, you're, ins- why do you think you're insipid, Peter? <laughs> because I find this a big, big day today being with you, having to get out of my pajamas, which I'm very happy. To well, be I, f- I feel very privileged you and honoured that you have got out. But you know what? You didn't need to get out of your pajamas. I, I actually debated it. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been okay with it. I actually debated it. <laughs> I have clients turning up in their Ugg boots all the time. It's oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. want those. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me, Peter, and for getting out of your pyjamas. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. I just want to start by asking you, I'm not hearing a local accent. Where, where do you hail from? Um, Menai? No, no. Uh, Menai. Menai, yeah, just down the road. Yeah, that's, that's pretty. No, uh, New York, New York City, Manhattan. Okay. So. And how do you find yourself in Australia? I came out for two years in 1976, and then a series of events happened, and I ended up staying here. I came out as a school teacher because in 1976, I could not find a teaching job anywhere in America because I had no experience teaching. So I came out here for two years to get that experience so I could have on my resume, which they called them back then. And then somebody would go, oh, look, he's not only taught, but he taught in Australia. Let's hire him. Do they still have difficulty finding school teachers in America? No, now you just have no, no, because who the hell wants to be underpaid and abused? Yeah. (laughs) Well, in those days, we were much more dedicated to being underpaid and abused. Okay, so you found yourself in Sydney? Did you come straight to Sydney? uh, Well, that was the first thing that happened. Uh, We got assigned our area, and I was assigned to Green Valley. And my thought was, wow, Green Valley, this is great. And I pictured the the rolling hills and the sheep. And then the cafeteria, somebody said to me, where somebody Australian said, where were you assigned? And I said Green Valley, and they laughed and laughed and laughed because it was a tough area. Yeah. But it was great. I really enjoyed the experience. Whereabouts is Green Valley? Uh, not far from Liverpool. Okay. So uh, not far from here? Uh, not if really? you live in Perth. Uh-huh. But not, not from New York. Uh, they're close together if you're from there. But, yeah, it's, a, it's about a 30-minute, 40-minute drive. So Liverpool is west. That's correct. So you were teaching there for yes. how long? I taught in Green Valley for uh, five years. Um, Heckenberg Public School, most of that time, almost all of it. And then I transferred to Lansville Public School, which is in Cabramatta, and then that was followed by the incident. <laughs> and then I uh, tra- taught in two more schools and then left teaching. The incident. What was the incident? Uh, well, it was more than an incident. I was being victimized by a principal. Um, 
I mean, the, that's what the judgment said. The judgment, the judgment, because it went to court, and mm. the judge said in her judgment, which is what judges do, that's kind of their point, uh, I believe Mr. Mizell was treated unfairly, which is what I wanted to hear, and also that on the stand, uh, the principal, I cannot accept... I cannot accept the evidence given by Mr. Bond, who was the principal, which I've discussed this with lawyers, which is, I cannot accept the evidence is legalese for this guy's lying through his fucking teeth. Mm. And those two things, because that, I mean, this is kind of about depression, um, or I've been led to believe. <laughs> and um, once I read that judgment, the la- that severe episode of depression started to lift. Right. So how long had you been experiencing mental health um, issues between the court and the incident? Was it something that was present before, before well, you I've started? Well, I've had bouts of it. Didn't, uh, you see, when, I, when I was young, I didn't know what it was. Uh, the, tr- <laughs> the treatment for depression was snap out of it, um, yeah. which really, if that actually worked, instead of going to medical school and becoming a resident and becoming a psychiatrist, you could spend 10 minutes learning how to say snap out of it. So that doesn't always work. Yeah. But uh, it wasn't anybody's fault. Uh, and I remember the first time it hit, well, I had actually, I actually had incidents of anxiety. Again, didn't know what it was. The first anxiety or panic attack was in first grade, sitting in the assembly and I'd been with friends in kindergarten. We were separated for first grade, not for any reason, just because there were six classes. Mm. And I was sitting in the assembly, and I had my first anxiety attack. So I went. I asked permission to go to the office. Went to the office. Said, "I feel sick. I have a stomach ache," because that's what it felt like. And then my mom came to get me. And for a week, I would. She'd take me to school, and then I would say, "I can't do this." probably not as eloquently, and she'd take me home. Then we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, um, actually, the doctor, after a few days, and the doctor said, look, take him to school each day. You'll see his friends going in, and he'll want to go. But no, I didn't. In fact, I can't think of a time in my life I actually wanted to go to school, but that's a different matter. Which is ironic considering you ended up being a teacher. Well, that's one of the reasons I did. I was okay. going to make it different. than. Although the first grade teacher I had, she was lovely. It mm. wasn't. It was totally... My fault, if the fault can be attributed to it, but uh, they eventually the student, the poor student teacher, um, had to drag me in. My mom, I held on to my mom, and she, the student teacher, ripped me away, sort of like, I, I it was awful. And um, you know, I spent the morning crying in the first grade class, humiliated in front of the other children. So that was my first incident. Mm. And then the first depression. That was about five or six years of age. I would have been six. I would have just turned six in July, and this was September. Um, and I remember my first incident of depression was 1968. I remember it. And a friend and I were working at Bank Street College for Education. We, we used to get summer jobs mm. so we could buy drugs. In, no, no, no. It was, it was, it was before then. Yeah. I, I, it's all right. I yeah. have had somebody talking about the LSD use. So Never did that. Is, Never did yeah. that. Never did LSD. <laughs> because, you know. Like, open, open forum secrets, remember? Yeah. No, no. If I did, I'd be, I'd be proud of it. But no, I never did because I thought I wouldn't come back. Mm. But I remember uh, 1969, I was walking with a friend. We're walking to, it was in the West Village. And I remember just walking there. And going, I don't fit in with these people. I don't fit in with my family. I don't fit in with, um, not society. I don't mean I was anti, 
anti-society, but I didn't fit in with the, I, I just felt I didn't fit in. And that was the first episode of depression. It just, I didn't belong anywhere. Now I belong everywhere. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do for yourself when you had that, when you had that first First one, nothing. I, uh, you snapped out of it, did you? I was told to say, no, no, it was just, I used to go to, to uh, at night, used to go, because my parents were away at the time, which actually used to cheer me up when they went away on vacation, because <laughs> I had the place to myself. But I would go to Rockefeller, Rockefeller Center and sit by the fountains and watch the, you've seen the fountains on yeah, show on TV, and watch the fountains okay. and take up and smoke cigarettes, which I never did other than at Rockefeller Center. Oh, yeah, that's what I did for that. Okay. And then at... Um, so what inspired you to go to teaching college? Well, first I went to university and majored in psychology. And I thought this would be an interesting topic to talk. I'd be able to talk psychology with the other people in the unemployment line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were poli-science majors and philosophy majors, but, you know, um, it just, yeah, there were a lot of us unemployed. So I said, well, I need to do something that um, I can actually get a job with. And I, I always thought teaching would be good because um, I didn't like children, so I wouldn't get attacked. No, no, I thought that would be a good thing to do. And it was. Mm. I really enjoyed teaching for most of my career. In fact, this, this, this Sunday, no, Saturday, I'm having lunch with a few ex-pupils who are in their mid-40s. And this oh. happens... Occasionally, I get I get to hang out with them. Yeah. And by the way, these are all. Uh, uh, some of them are are the kids who were, you know, uh, discriminated against because they're Asian, Viet, Viet, Chinese, Vietnamese background. Two of them, I think, Chinese Vietnamese. Anyway, at, and you know, these people would never amount to anything. They're draining out. They're not draining anything. They're contributing to society more than the people who said they were going to drain it. Yes. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I just wait for, and I made a prediction uh, that the Arabic, the quote, stroke Lebanese people would stop being vilified when the Asian people started, when the uh, African people, Sudanese in particular, and um, started to come in because then they would have a new group to vilify. Mm. So that's exactly what's happened. You know, it's mm. now the, those African gangs in Melbourne. I'm yes. just dying to see who's the next group. Well, I know who the next group will be. It'll be Americans <laughs> because it, it's, uh, and rightfully so, we should be vilified, but we will be uh, <laughs> become economic refugees because of what's, I'm kidding. But <laughs> No, yeah. no, I mean, you it's, never know. A, it's, it's, a, it's a valid point, I think, considering yeah. what's going on in the States. Mm. Yeah. So. so just coming back to your, um, to, to, to your, own, your own health and your own experience, when you were going through, your teaching and you know you joking there about being unemployed and what was your what was your college experience like with regards to your own mental health and the study pressure college was great i was very very happy at I, I didn't i don't think at college i while i was at college i don't think i suffered from depression um i didn't go to class and none of those pesky lectures depressed me yeah. um i enjoyed it, it was a nice it, it was like a commute. Uh, this is wrong because it's going to come across wrong. But there was a group of people and we hung out together and it was really nice. And I just saw these people when I was back in, or a lot of these people when I was back in uh, in America in, in July. And we went to where we went, where it's just where we went to university. 
And yeah, no, I, I it came and went in different at different points of life. Yeah. Uh, after university, uh, the depression hit again. Um, I took up not for depression, but I took up running, jogging, and that actually I don't ever remember being, being depressed while I was doing jog. Oh, during it, while I was actually no, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, but I don't remember ever feeling depressed during that period of time. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, you're talking to somebody that thinks that the words fun and run don't belong together. So yeah, you can you can joke about not feeling depressed yeah. when you were running. Actually, it was the best. It was really, and I tried other sport. I mean, I, I mean, other thing. I, I've tr- I tried uh, swimming, which was okay, but boring. Uh, running, I never found boring. I enjoyed that. But you know, it's funny because I, when I was 19, 18, I. St- had my first few cigarettes. At 19, I took it up quite seriously, smoking cigarettes. And I smoked for five years, and then I took up running. And I ran for five years, and um, I've had a hip replacement and a knee replacement, but my lungs are just fine. So I probably should have just <laughs> stuck with the smoking. <laughs> I used to be a long-distance runner, and I've had my Is hip reconstructed right? as well. So yeah. hence why I'm now fun run. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should run right to the hospital. That's right, yeah. But it felt great for the head. It really yeah, did. Yeah, it does. I have to do, I do confess that I I do still miss running pretty much daily. Same. Thinking I wish I could go for a run right now and I, I, I can't. No, same. I can barely walk a kilometre these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's funny because in, the, in, the, in New York, it's doing a lot of walking. But I tried running because um, for my 70th birthday, I went to the playground with a friend of mine that we played in when we were kids and we threw a football around, and I can't run. L- literally, it's more of a hobble, yep. even with a good knee and a good hip. But, um, yeah. Out of practice, Peter. Out of practice. That might be it. Mm. That might be it. I mean, yep. sometimes I run, so I'm the first one at the remote control, so I get them for Jan. <laughs> but um, that's pretty much it. I want to buy track shoes. I need to be able to get to the remote control first. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to go, to, go, go and buy yourself some trainers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got that sponginess. So when um, when sort of just sort of going going back to the the incident and the start of that big episode of depression yes. that you experienced, yeah, can you just sort of talk me through a little bit of how how you felt at the beginning and the things that you were doing to sort of like try and get yourself out of it because you were of this mindset of snap out of it because we still weren't really sort of. By that time, that was started in 1989. It started with an argument over my refusal to wear knee socks, those long, stupid knee socks with shorts. And from there... That's a very Australian look. Very Australian, yeah, but there's no rule that you had to. Yeah. But the principal said to do it, and I said, no, I, I really can't do They said, well, they don't wear shorts, blah, blah, blah. And every time something could happen, there could be a good outcome or a bad one, it would be the bad one. So things just deteriorated. It wasn't that was it, but it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, he wrote, I went away, I took leave without pay, entitled to come back to the school. Yeah. And I knew that. I knew I was entitled because that's where I met Jan. She was there. I had friends there. I've always been big on friends and sort of a, a, having a group to hang out with. Yeah. And uh, so I had a group. So I tried to get back and he tried to prevent me. And one of the things he wore was that I dressed sloppily because, uh, which came up in court. And it was, 
according to them, it was just, it ended up being just my track shoes that they could complain about because they were muddy from, because my classroom was in the mud. It was a demountable. And as soon as it rained, yeah. it was like going through a swamp, which really made the Vietnamese kids a little nervous, but still, uh, <laughs> sorry, politically incorrect. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, so, um, so the thing, yeah, it so it just got out of hand, just got more and more out of hand. And so he tried to prevent me from coming back to the school. And he wrote about this dress thing. And he also wrote, and I'm quoting because it's something, uh, uh, I don't want Miss Myself back because of the way he dresses. And the more serious one, he freak, Peter frequently inappropriately touches girl students. Now, that's, wow. yeah. Very inflammatory. Oh, just and, to say the least. completely uncalled for. Uncalled for. And in court, I said, and the, my, my barrister said, and I kept asking, name a kid, name a parent who's complained, name anybody. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And this is where they caught the prisoner. He kept, he kept um, changing his story. Well, I didn't lie once. You know, they mm. say, oh, there's two sides to every story. Well, my story was accurate because they, the, the, their barrister... Uh, GIO tried to trip me up. Oh, there was nothing they could get me on because everything was true and I couldn't sleep because I would relive the whole thing every night. So imagine that. And they sent that to the, the part, the, um, it went to the, what was called, I think the cluster director and then the area director. And I, I think it got as far as the director of education. I, I can't remember how far it went up who saw that actual letter. But uh, I didn't know about that letter for two years. So here they have a teacher who's accused of frequently, not just occasionally, but frequently inappropriately touching girls' students, and they've done nothing about it. They haven't even contacted me. And by the rules of the Department of Education, boy, I can feel my blood churning now. They're supposed to get in touch. Any letter written of complaint, they need to get in touch. Yeah. Within 30 days, I believe, and I may be wrong. And investigate, I would And investigate, and the sure teacher has a right to know what's going on. Um... So that was the start of it. It got worse after that. They did an investigation of the school and where everybody got to talk to a group of people. By the way, the Federation were absolutely, not only useless, they were, the guy who was in charge of my case, and I'll say his name because let him sue me, I hope so, Gary Zakovich. When I was, what happened at the end of it, this investigation, they kicked us out. They kicked both the principal and I out of the school. They, they had us transferred. Both of us were forced transferred. And this is what Gary Zakovich, the federal, and he's pretty high up in the Teachers Federation now. This is what he said to me. Oh, there was no way they were going to just move a principal. So what does that mean? That means either they, if I was in the fault, they would just move me. Both of us were at fault. But they, there was no way because this, this showed uh, so you were I, transferred as well. So we were both transferred to different school, and it was never comfortable again because I never knew. And I'll tell you there, again, the first of all, I never knew what was real and what was being set up. So, so there was always this sort of like doubt and this sort of yeah. um, in, in your head of, is it, is, is it me? Am I doing something This time, something is there something, is what there are they doing, what are they plotting? Because I always yeah. felt it was, and it was a plot at this, at Lansvale. Yeah. So this school... I meet with the principal. He seems like a good guy. He goes, yeah, I kind of know about Ken Bond. I kind of know what he's like. Um, so don't worry about it. Uh, you know, you just do a good job. So at the end of the three semesters I'm there, three terms, sorry. Yeah. 
uh, I ask, uh, he goes, oh, first of all, he asked me, he goes, I've already accepted a new position because it was only a temporary position until the following year. Mm. He asked me, do I, do I want to stay? I go, well, I, I really don't feel right doing that because I've accepted a position somewhere else. He goes, okay. I He's away because he's, I think he, I can't remember. I know he was the coach of the uh, billiard team. So he made it, seriously, uh, the New South Wales, whatever billiard team. So he was away a lot. So I'm working with the deputy principal, um, and I ask her for a referral. And she goes, yeah, sure. And I come back to pick it up, and I say, oh, can I have the referral now? And she goes, um, this is after I'm, I've left that school. She goes, oh, I didn't write you one. I need you to go see the principal. So I go to see him, and he goes, well, I decided I'd write it. Uh, and he wrote it, and it was absolutely mediocre. Even though I'd done a great job teaching there, I had parents. I've seen ex-pupils from there yeah. I'm still in touch with. Mm. So it was a really, me- just the right, you know, did a satisfactory job, you know, uh, pre- did his prepper. It wasn't what I thought it should have been. Yeah. And my idea is he got the word from the Department of Education to don't make, don't build this guy up, whatever you mm. do. I had another principal who's a friend of mine who's also Peter somebody, well, what the hell is his name? Peter, but he Another was a friend. Peter. Sorry? Another, Another Peter. Peter. Uh, also a good guy. Also ended up getting screwed, not because of me, but got screwed to the point. Well, his story was he was, when he, I knew him as an executive teacher. Then he became a principal, and they took him to court because they said he had stolen money to send his, so he could take his dying daughter to Disneyland. It was a lie. Um, and, you know, he, so they took him to court. The press was there. They found him not guilty, which he wasn't, because I know this guy. He yeah. wasn't guilty. There was no chance he was guilty. It was somebody had put in a false claim to do the gardening. And they had a fake ABN number or whatever. It was, I don't yeah. think it was even ABN then. Whatever. So he paid the guy the money. And they tried to say he skimmed that off. And he was found not guilty, and the press couldn't have cared less. They just walked away, didn't even question him afterwards. Anyway, when he was principal and things were going well for him, he pulls me over just as a friend, and he goes to me, um, oh, you were, the, you were the topic of conversation at the last principal's conference. And he wasn't doing it to be mean. He was just doing it to be like, you know, look, 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 look at you, look what you've done. So anyway, these things, every time I would even start to get better, there would be some punch to the gut. And, and that just bring you down again, which would bring me right down, just right down. And here was the last one. So I, I transferred to this other school, Reesby Public School. The principal there is fantastic, but she's a, she's a temporary. Her name's Diane Masters or something, Masters, whatever. She's lovely. She's great. She, they apply, this has nothing to do with me, but she applies when they're applying for uh, principals. Uh, she applies. She doesn't even get to interview. Now, I don't know what she had done, but she was just, to me, what a principal should be like. Mm. So had she stayed, had she made it, I would have stayed in teaching. Mm. Um, so the principal gets it, Frank Krisick. He, um, I knew him from our softball days. He played softball for one team. I played for another. We beat his team in the grand final. Yes, that's right. We beat his team. <laughs> but uh, I had no problem with him. He comes down to the school to look at the school. I'm in the staff room. It's a recess or whatever. And he's sitting with another teacher, uh, an executive teacher. 
at the table next to me. And he knows what's gone on. And he goes to the teacher next to me. Oh, yeah, I just came from my good friend Ken Bond's place to drop off something. So he made it known. I know this guy's a friend of mine. You know. So this is this is your. This is so going to be the next principal. This is going to be the next principal at the school that you're teaching at. That I'm now teaching at this at Reesby Public School. This guy was, by the way, one of the witnesses at court. For the other for, for the other side, of yeah. course. And uh, I may be wrong on this one, uh, but you would have thought a lot of the people who were on the stand there had later stages of Alzheimer's, what they have no recollection thereof okay. was just amazing to me. I don't know. I don't know. Where am I? Uh, yeah. That's that's hyperbole. But yeah. this, yeah. So after he came, so he's already been appointed, but he's not the principal yet. He's just there for a visit. He will be the principal next turn. In the meantime, my mom is, is uh, dying, and I have to go back to America to... Uh, say goodbye and take care of business and stuff like that. And she, she, she dies. Um, and as she's dying, I see her dying. Uh, it, it occurs to me, I don't want to be miserable every day of my life. I don't want to go and do something that I used to like, but now I'm concerned that everything I say or do is going to be either used against me or misinterpreted. You know, the paranoia, it was my paranoia, hmm. but it wasn't based just on nothing. Um, so there was a reason for the paranoia. Absolutely. I mean, it, it I guess it's not proven. paranoia if people are really out to get you. And getting back to out to get me, uh, so they did a, an investigation of the school. And uh, that investigation, they spoke to everybody. As I said, Gary Zakovich said, oh, there's no way they were just going to move the principal. And he didn't just say that to me. He said that to another teacher as well, Jeff Brown, if somebody needs this corroborated. <laughs> and... Um, so they did the investigation, the investigation. We're having this investigation of the school to see why this, because the school is having problems with Peter Mizell. So right there, they've put people who may not know me a first year out. I mean, it's putting a seed in their head. Yeah. So As uh, you being the problem. As I being the problem. Yet in the final report, which a lot was redacted, a word I didn't know until then, what <laughs> redacted meant, um, you know, it said uh, the problems the uh, that they're having with the school. Yeah. So. Yeah. But once, they once you received that final report from the court saying that you know that you were that you had you hadn't been imagining all of this. That's right. Your I was treated unfairly. Your, that you were treated unfairly. You said that you had you felt the depression started lift, to slowly start to lift, but started to get better. Um. Yeah, it took a few years still. Yep. I also had a dog. That helps. Okay. Um, we would have, he and I, you know the discussion we're having? Yes. He and I would have that very same discussion. But and he, he always would, got the right answers, right? Well, he tilted his head, which made him sound, seem like he was interested. <laughs> <laughs> Much like you're doing. Uh, <laughs> if you scratch behind your ear, it'll, yes. it'll, it'll be exactly the same. But it, that helped as well. And to the point where... Because everything I did, and I don't know if this is healthy, but I think a lot of teachers do this, we did everything through the prism of seeing things as a teacher. You know, like, um, yeah, everything. Oh, I'm, I'm in a bookstore. Oh, you know what? I'll bet the kids would like this book. And I might buy it, I might not, but it was all like that. And I was good at it, I think. I mean, I'm still in touch with lots of them. 
Uh, not everyone at the school liked me, and I was very strict. But um, yeah, but obviously I, enough of them like enough of your students liked you that you still have tea and coffee with them occasionally. Well, we're going for beers, but okay. If you want to, if you want to sound nice about it, you bet. I say I'm the so, fact th- is, I'm so fact thoroughly that, English. Yeah, tea and coffee. Tea and coffee you know, <laughs> yeah, we might have a biscuit with it. No, we're, we're going for lunch on Saturday, and I'm going to have beers. I know one of them, Sun Trin, he's going to have beers. Brendan Fellows is going to have beers. I'm not sure what Chantel's going to be drinking, but uh, probably a wine or a cocktail. That's my guess. Nice. So yeah, it'll, it is be, nice. it'll be a nice, nice thing. So once you once you finished with your teaching, so you're sort of retired from teaching. What was your next endeavor? Because you you well, I had comedy overlapping. You had comedy overlapping. I started comedy in 1991, maybe maybe 90, 91. So this no, is 91. Stand up comedy. Well, with whichever position they wanted me in, <laughs> yeah, it was stand up comedy. So I did stand up comedy starting in 1991. Um, I called myself a full-time comic in 1994 when I stopped teaching, although to this day I don't make a living out of it. But, uh, yeah, so, and it, I don't miss teaching anymore, but I did for a long time. And then it's, you know, it'd be a, it really used to be draining because, and this was a mistake I made in comedy, I'll get back. When you're teaching, if okay, picture yourself a salesman, or saleswoman, or salesperson, whatever the correct word is now. You go door to door selling vacuum cleaners. You go to 30 doors, you sell 29 vacuum cleaners. It's the best day you're ever going to have. With teaching, you have 29 kids doing the right thing. You worry about that one kid who isn't. Mm. So, um, so yeah. So with comedy, I used to make that mistake too. Why is that one person in the audience? Usually it was more, but for the sake of this story, <laughs> you've seen ha- your set, Peter. You have <laughs> the same one, but yeah, uh, you worry about that one per hour. I used to worry about that one person, not laughing, not laughing. What is wrong? What am I do- What am I doing wrong? How can I reach this person in the twenty minutes that I have to get to them? And then it occurred to me, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care, and there's no test afterwards. So yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah, I'm sure you could have worked that into your set, though. A test at the end of it. I have, I have discussed being there will be a test at the end of this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's quite common for uh, ex-teachers to become um, stand-ups. There were a lot of teachers. Here, Biljik is a teacher. You know, the guy who played Habib in Fat Pizza. Um, Harry June um, is a teacher. Yeah, there are a few. I can't think of the other names offhand, but the English. Oh, uh, Andrew, Andrew, uh, uh, Rob Andrews. Yeah. Greg Davis from the UK is an ex-teacher too. I don't know the name. Oh, he's, sorry. Yeah, he's like six foot six foot eight. He was in um, several TV shows. Yes, I get confused with him a lot. Yeah. Um, at six foot eight. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> he's such a you know he doesn't stand out at all. No. No. <laughs> no. Um, I forgot what I was yeah. going to say next. Teachers, was, ex-teachers and comedy. Yeah, I know. You know, it was past that. I was going to. You see, I, I have AD. That was another thing. I was diagnosed today at, at the age of 58 with being ADD. Sure, I started the test. At, yeah, I started the test at 32. But no, <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that second part isn't true. But it's true, ADD. So my mind wanders all the time. It is constantly going places. But it forgets where it was. <laughs> <laughs> but does it enjoy it while it's there? It doesn't remember. <laughs> it doesn't know. It doesn't remember. So you said there was a bit of an overlap between comedy and teaching. Yes. 
what what was it that got you interested and started in started in in the comedy? Oh well, I I'm Jewish and couldn't get into med school or dental school. So yeah. what's left? No, no, <laughs> I've always wanted to do it. Um, a friend of my a friend of mine, Michelle Lee. Um, I knew her parents were friends of mine, and I knew her. I met her when she was eight. She's from Texas. They're from Texas. She was born in Texas, but she's been here at least since she's eight, probably six. And she always thought I was funny when she was a kid, but she, it continued to be that way. And she made me do it. And my inability to say no to people, because I need everybody to like me, um, took over. So she went with me four times to the, actually, there's a picture of her and I at the comedy store the, I think it was the third time we did it. And she would go with me on, uh, you know, and would watch. And she goes, okay, next week you're going on. And in those days, it was easy to get time. And so I went on, and I had five minutes. I practiced. I was nervous, shook. For the longest time, I couldn't take the microphone out of the stand because I just couldn't. I couldn't get my leg to stop shaking. It was just awful. But the third time went well. It was a good night. Uh, first and second were just experiences. Couldn't fill up the five minutes. I thought I had five minutes, but I couldn't remember. It certainly wasn't laughter was filling up the time. Um, by the third time, I was hooked. Right. I was hooked. Yeah, they, and they say that you should do material at least three times yes. before they before you before you don't do it again. That's right. To try it out because you have that one person in the audience that you're never going to make happy. Yeah, yeah. And also for me, I, I can't speak for other people's style of comedy. Um, I'm, I need to practice to be spontaneous. I need <laughs> lots of practice to be spontaneous because it, as I'm running through it in my head, it's not natural. So even though I've practiced it, a different part of my brain, and there's not a lot to waste, but a yeah. different part <laughs> of my brain is taking over and it's different. So the first couple of, there's stuff I have now that it is, it just seems to really work well. Um, but the first few times it didn't. Mm. And if it doesn't go well the first time, my first instinct is to go, well, I'm not doing this. I'll just bring out the Dalmatian cult ring book and that'll be it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I sleep with it. I want to be buried with one in case there's after death comedy. Yeah, you uh, need to be buried with one. I need to be ready, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so, so yeah. So it's also an outlet. Um, does it help, does it help with your mental health? Well, my mental health has been, I have to, mini depressions now. Um, but that's more, look, I know I am, I think it, on paper and I know this, I'm the, I am, if not the luckiest person in the world, certainly the luckiest. Because what's happened to me is, first of all, it's not based on any skill. It is based on decisions I made based on something happening that I really had no control over. Uh, so living here, for example, in Australia. Uh, by the way, that's one good thing about Trump, which I have to thank him for. I was always kind of missed America, thought maybe I should be living there until Donald Trump started running for president. And I realized what a fucked up country America even... Not, no, not has become, but basically always was. He just kept it a secret. It wasn't always as bad as it is now. But, you know, we always had Alabama and Mississippi. 
And that, so, so getting back to depression, what depresses me now <laughs> is the world, is the world. And I used to think, well, that's selfish, of course, not selfish, because the world's going to affect you, climate change. Well, actually, I get depressed about climate change, but I'm not going to be around for the result of it. So I'm a much nicer person than I used to think I am, because <laughs> I do care about that. Um, and stuff like that, and, yeah. And the and the comedy. So, how often do you do comedy now? Um, usually six days a week of corporate gigs. No, no, none of that's true. <laughs> uh, about twice a week, three times a week on average, I guess. Uh, paid gigs usually. Yeah. Which is good, and not paid a lot. I yeah, because, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah. I, I don't need. I don't expect to make a living out of it at this age. I'm lucky if I get work, but the. Let's say I headlined at my level, let's, which doesn't happen. But let's say I headlined five days a week at $250 a week. Uh, that comes to $1,250. If I did that 50 times, that'd be like $62,000, which is livable. But nobody gets five days a week mm. of headlining, you know? So unless you get TV or radio or something like that or – Go to the next level where you get representation, who, who get you the the large and more theater or corporate gigs. You're not going to make a living out of it. And that's fine. I've resigned myself to that. There was a time I thought, well, maybe, you know, you keep working at it and writing and stuff like that. Now you use it as a as a way to it's fun. keep active. It's yeah, keep my mind. What's the word? Oh, active. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I do it. It's fun. It's it's fun. I've, I've got some people, um, like I do a lot of shows for Sean Morahan and for um, Matt Wakefield. And, uh, you know, people like Mark Williamson, who gets doesn't get nearly enough credit, you know, push a lot of people's careers along to no benefit to him at all. Um, he did comedy himself. He was a good MC. He's done a few shows for the festival, but he's kind of pulled away from it. He does podcasts, but he started Comedy on Edge, and uh, yeah, I, I need to thank him. He did a he he did a lot for my career as has Sean, as has Matt. I think uh, the last time Dane I Heiser saw you too. was a was a Williamson gig actually. The last time I saw you at Mark Williams. It's been that long. Right. I'm pretty sure if I came and saw you, I'd be laughing at the same jokes, though, right? Have you got, got some new? Do you have ones? You have, you've seen the one about dog shooting people? No. You see? Oh, the new one. Oh, way new one. <laughs> way new one. Yeah. A new one, but I like your. I like. I like your. I like your humor. It's a very. Your, your humor is very visual too. It is. I. I. It's very hard when I do audiences of the blind. <laughs> particularly, <laughs> particularly the 101 Dalmatian coloring book. Yeah. How do I explain that? <laughs> and I do like the I do like that you rib uh, rib the the Aussie and the Aussie language and the way we the way we speak and the way we treat honor yeah. the way we honor our dignitaries. Really, um, I don't know that bit. Remind me so I can use it again. <laughs> no swimming pool. Oh, oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. Some guy in Germany stole that bit, by the way. Really? Yeah, an Australian guy doing comedy in Germany, yeah. Wow, that's a bit rough. That's a bit rough. That's a bit rough. Yeah. yeah. I assume he stole it because it's word for word. Right. And you have been doing it for a while. I have been doing it for a but long while. it's still while. very funny every time. Thank I you. Do. And there are new bits to it too that you don't even know about. I do need to come and see you again, don't I? Please. I do. 
Damn it. When's your next, when, when, what gigs have you got lined up? Am I putting you on the spot too much? No, I, I have, I have, uh, oh, um, I've got the Rhythm Cruise Boat, Rhythm Cruise Boat Cruise. Uh, it's a cruise of comedy and redundancy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> rhythm Boat Comedy Cruise, that's it, this Friday. That's a good, that's a good one. That's, that's, uh, it's, it literally is a captive audience. Yeah, they're cannot. going nowhere. The only, the only way they can get away yeah, is to nowhere. jump overboard. Yeah, they, they can do a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> they can swim away. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you for having a chat with me today. And oh, I'm just, thank you for but having I, me. There is a couple of things I just would like to close off with. Sure. So what do you do, apart from comedy, what do you do to look after yourself? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> no, really. I have you an exercise. in your pajamas. I stay in my pajamas. I have an exercise bike, but... Looking at it doesn't seem to help a lot. Uh, also, I have a set of weights that uh, sometimes I dust them, but that doesn't seem to help a lot. That's exercise. Uh, uh, what do I do to take care? I I seem okay now. You're not going to tell me why I shouldn't feel okay, are you? No, absolutely oh, not. This no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. You feel okay? You? Really? Why? <laughs> you have no reason to feel good. No, I, um, that's, I, I just turned 70. Now you have to say, what? You don't look anywhere near that. What? You don't <laughs> look like you're 70. What did it mean for you to become like Meryl Streep? <laughs> but, I can't oh, help it. It's yeah. English. <laughs> but uh, so I've kind of, I know giving up isn't the right word, but I, I don't care anymore. And I, don't, I, I, I do care about things, but not so much me. And if that sounds altruistic, I don't mean it that way. What more do I need? I get to do comedy twice a week. I've got a lovely wife. I've got a couple of stepchildren. I've got incredible grandchildren. Uh, I really don't. I have a nice house to watch TV in and stay in my pajamas. There's not a lot. I, I keep in touch now with friends of, of 60 plus years. I don't mean 60 plus years old. I've known them for over 60 years. I get to travel occasionally. Uh, although that's getting harder at this age. It really is. Um, but no, I'm quite, it gets better. It gets better. Once the battles are over, and I think most of my battle, uh, I'm sure I'll have health battles later on, and I'm sure I'll have, um, I mean, this decade, I'm sure I will have people I really care about will not be around by the end of it. I might be one of them. Um, but at this point in time, I'm I'm really happy, and I have had some battles. Do we have time for one more thing? Okay. The I used to have agoraphobia, in the sense I could leave the house, but I had to be home at night. That's I still don't feel a hundred percent comfortable driving away from the house, like going to a gig in Wollongong. Let's say, I feel great coming home. So those are still residual stuff, but that's about it. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for sharing your secrets today. I'm sure there's a few in there. Thank you to Nick McCorriston, my podcast guy, who's going to make this sound okay. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening, subscribing, and rating us. And for the Patreon um, people who are now sponsoring and allowing this to continue. I need to give a good shout out to Julia, who was my absolute first Patreon patron. And absolutely thank you very much to you. 
You can find us at Patreon at Secrets We Share if you search. If you have secrets that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you and you can contact me via my website, secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening to Secrets We Share. If you're interested in sharing some of your secrets, please visit our website at secretkeepercounseling.com.au. Keep an ear out for our next episode soon.